Welcome to the Ohio Ministry Network podcast. The following audio was recorded at the 2014 Forum. For more information, please visit ohioministry.net. All right. Good morning again, and welcome to the session where we'll spend some time reflecting on this question of um, the Holy Spirit. Crucial significant for us as people who call ourselves Pentecostal, who understand ourselves to be people of the Holy Spirit. Um, We're trying to get uh, my PowerPoints up there. I was here, but I didn't realize that we needed to do all this stuff uh, in advance. So uh, I apologize for not having everything right and crisp. But I do guarantee that um, we will have plenty of time to reflect deeply on, on this question that is really crucial for us. Let me give you a little bit of background about why <clears throat> this topic is so important to me personally. Uh, years ago, I was, um, the Lord called my wife and I to leave our uh, corporate positions in New York City to go to a little town called Springfield, Missouri. And there to complete our, or actually to, yeah, to complete our theological uh, education. That was a uh, big cultural shock after having been born in Barbados and then uh, spending almost 10 years in New York City. And I thought, going to our headquarters city, man, I'm going to see everything I wanted to see. But I came across something very interesting. Now, truth is, I found some wonderful Pentecostal people who have continued to have a lasting impression, uh, impact upon my life. But I also noticed something. I noticed uh, I w- while I was teaching one class, I was a class in Christian theology, and I showed a, a, a picture, or like a, it was like a documentary, on the Pentecostal movement. I thought it was a very mild documentary, and I said, but this, is, this puts us in a fairly good light. You know, the truth is, we don't get a lot of good press, <laughs> the media. But as I was watching uh, this thing, I looked at the faces of my students, and my students were like, oh. and when we finished the video, the students all looked at me and said, this is not us. Those people are crazy. And I thought, if they think that these people are crazy, what is their Pentecostal experience? Because people were just lifting hands and speaking in tongues. That that was the the extent of what they were doing. These these students, many of them third and fourth generation Pentecostals, um, thought that this was strange. This thing bothered me so deeply. Um, In fact, I coined a term out of it. I was sharing with um, a couple of folks here. Uh, what I call functional cessationism, right? People who technically retained the doctrine of Pentecostalism, but in their experience, they're no longer Pentecostals, right? So I thought about this for a while, and I, and I did further research. Of course, I was finishing up my graduate education and moving on to PhD, but this continued to be a real... Uh, concern of mine, 
real deep, passionate concern of mine. So I was asking the question, how did we get here? How is it that just a hundred years ago, people who are called these people of the spirit, who are breaking all kinds of conventions, we get to their great-great-grandchildren, and these great-great-grandchildren do not recognize them anymore. Right? The more I reflected on this, the more I realized that in addition to practical issues, right, one of which is the microphone, strangely enough, when you introduce a microphone into a service, you immediately say that there's one person in charge at a time. Right? And the use of a microphone has to be very judicious in Pentecostal circles because we can shout down the Holy Spirit. Isn't that true? We've, we've all seen this. And we have to be careful. So some of us were practical. But the, 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 the deeper I, I, I dug into this issue, the more I realized there is something deeper. There is a fundamental misunderstanding about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Somewhere along the line, those who had a Pentecostal experience weren't able to convey it in many respects very successfully to to succeeding generations. So what they saw their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents doing, the things they saw them doing, they could not get satisfying answers for And because they could not find satisfying intellectual answers, they assumed that what their parents and great-grandparents was doing was just nonsense. Or at least least, um, hyper-emotionalism. So this morning, um, this is part of a much, much larger study. Um, What I'm trying to do today is present what I call a basic framework for understanding not Holy Spirit in general, although that the larger study does incorporate the Holy Spirit in general, I want to zero in specifically today about a key doctrine for us, this question of baptism in the Holy Spirit. And really taking to task the idea, the notion that baptism in the Holy Spirit is something for a few people scattered throughout history. Also, I want to take to task the idea that Pentecostals are stupid to believe this. We have an airtight, solid case to make for baptism in the Holy Spirit. And this is not something that we, we just invented. Now, again, I don't have time to go into historical issues, but part of the problem intellectually, has been the failure of us Pentecostals to connect ourselves with the greater Christian tradition. Because if we were to study the greater Christian tradition, we would see that what we call baptism in the Holy Spirit did not leave the church. See, the assumption is that uh, at the, the, the turn of the 20th, 20th century, that the Pentecostals rediscovered something that had been entirely lost in the Christian tradition. If I were to read to you some people from the Orthodox Church, Orthodox monks who are talking about baptism in the Holy Spirit, I guess you'd think that they were written by Pentecostals. It's like, hey, I know you. This is, my, this is my experience reading this material. I know you. I know you. I was in church with you. 
I experienced the same God that you experienced. Right? So part of it is, is that historical gap. Can't deal with that today. But what we will do is we're going to talk about this, uh, focus our discussion tonight, uh, this morning, on some basic affirmations about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me see, if, make sure this clicker works. Ah, we have clicker. Now I'm going to skip through uh, the, the first part of this introduction. Um, just wanted to show you this picture uh, one of my students drew. About the, this is their version of the Holy Trinity. This is just one version of the, of the, uh, the drawing that I received. Um, I'm skipping through this because this stuff, basic stuff I think you should know, what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit and so on. The Holy Spirit is divine. The Holy Spirit is distinct from Father and Son. Again, I, this is not the core of a discussion. I'm just going to lead you into it. Um, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is at work powerfully. Um, the Holy Spirit is God hovering over matter to bring matter into alignment with divine purpose. This is a lot of theological language, but this is directly taken from Genesis 1-2. Right? Uh, in the beginning, God creates heaven and the earth. And what's the first action of God after creating? The Spirit does what? Hovers. Very important metaphor, and it continues all throughout the Bible. And that's the other thing I, I discovered. My students would say, You mean the Holy Spirit is in the Old Testament? <laughs> Who knew? Well, we, we kind of taught, we, we've kind of taught that, right? That somehow what happens on the day of Pentecost is something so brand new. It's never happened before. That's not true. Now, what is true is that the extent of what takes place is far greater. But the Holy Spirit has always been hovering over matter to bring matter into alignment with God's purposes. So what's the activity of the Spirit? You know, I list uh, several things there. Enlivenment, to give life. Enlightenment, to bring wisdom and knowledge. Ennoblement, uh, to give uh, uh, character, holiness. Enablement or empowerment, to give the ability to do work for God's kingdom. Again, uh, this is part of a larger study, and I have all kinds of details that I, I'm not going to be able to get into today. Uh, spirit of, spirit-filled life as both the state and goal of the Christian experience of the Holy Spirit. This is a big one. Um, this is where I challenge my non-Pentecostal friends who are very often pneumatophobic, right? They're fearful of the Holy Spirit. I say to them, you read the New Testament again. Ask Luke, do you think Luke imagines a Christian to live a Christian life without being spirit-filled? Ask Paul, do you think Paul would conceive of a spiritual life where we, all we do is accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and then somehow we end up going to heaven? No. These men of God understand the, the concept of the Spirit of God working, hovering. I mean, we have the prototype of Jesus, of course, which is a whole other topic in itself. But the prototype of Jesus, upon whom the Spirit hovers, just as the Spirit hovers over creation at the day of, uh, uh, the day of creation, he hovers over Christ in the new creation as he comes out of the... Uh, waters of baptism. And it becomes a powerful image of God recreating a new humanity. Then in Luke 4, Jesus emerges and says, from his temptation in the wilderness, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then Acts chapter 2 continues this great theme. The spirit of God now is upon the church to fulfill the mission of Christ in the world. Um, Again, these are other texts of scripture. Uh, the, 
understand that there's a strong biblical basis for understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Uh, and it's all connected with the New Covenant language that you find all throughout Scripture. Uh, particularly, you find New Covenant language in um, Ezekiel, in uh, Jeremiah, and in Joel as, as well. Um, but, but this is just a, a kind of foretaste of other things that we could, we could have talked about today. Uh, today, though, I want to focus on um, this concept that, we, that I consider to be crucially important, spirit baptism. One of the great criticisms that get leveled, that gets leveled at Christians or Pentecostals, rather, is that we are not reading the entire Bible. That we just like the book, the books of Luke and Acts, because in the books of Luke and Acts, we find ourselves, we see all this spirit activity and so on and so forth. I asked my students yesterday in class, actually, I asked them, who was the most prolific author, or rather the author who writes the most in the New Testament. Paul, right? You'd think that. You would think that, but you'd be wrong. Between the books of Luke and Acts is over a quarter of the New Testament material. Now, our forefathers probably didn't connect that or may may not have seen that. But there was something, see, the book of Luke provides not only a narrative of the life of of Jesus, but it also depicts the life of the church as flowing from the life of Jesus. And in these two very important books, we have both the founder of our faith, the great captain of our faith, but also, significantly, um, we have what it meant and what it looked like to live out the faith in this context, right? So the Acts and Luke are significant. But another thing they will say, well, you know, Luke wasn't writing theology. So, so why are you taking all this theology from just stories? To which I respond, uh, my first point, all scripture is equally inspired or God-breathed and thus equally authoritative and useful for doctrine and practice. Therefore, stories, stories are crucial to understand the faith. So I ask them, those who bring this objection, where do you think we get our doctrine of creation from? Do we get it from creeds or propositional statements? What is the, what's the first narrative, or rather, what's the first literary genre that we encounter when we read the Bible? A story. It's the story of creation. So we have to reclaim the Bible. So uh, rather than saying that Pentecostals are only reading the sections of the Bible they like, I would suggest that many of our evangelical friends are rather too selective about what they're reading. And tending to have a more Pauline approach. Now, I'm not going to set up Paul against Luke at all. And that's not my point here. But they tend to have a Pauline approach. But you have to understand that when you're reading Paul, you're de- reading Paul dealing with situations. 
issues. He's not unfolding or trying to explain the life of the church. So really, to get a good picture of the New Testament, you need to be reading the letters of Paul in one hand, but also the book of Acts in the other hand, so you can see the context within which uh, these ideas are developed. All right? So that's point number one. Um, the second point is that Scripture must always be read with the, writer, uh, the context of the writer in mind right? and the intended audience. So I want to repeat that here because a lot of what I said is, is, is embedded there, and I want to move on to a few more uh, salient points. But we keep, the, the, the main point here is that when you're reading the story of Luke, or, or let's say, for example, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, we need to keep that in the context of the wider narrative that's taking place in the gospel of Luke. And also, I mean, beyond the Lucan corpus, to John. And to what, what is John saying about the Holy Spirit? To Matthew, what is Matthew saying about the Holy Spirit? And then we then need then to read not only uh, within the Lucan corpus, within the gospel genre, we need to also move beyond the gospel genre to, to, to the to epistles. But then even beyond epistles, we need to go back to the Old Testament to see, okay, if the Bible that the New Testament church is reading is in fact the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and they're building their doctrine off of this, where do we find evidence of the Spirit's work like this in the, in the Old Testament? And again, it's, it's, a, it's a very fascinating and rewarding study um, that, uh, that if you want to do for your churches, it will help them. Trust me. We can't talk too much about the Holy Spirit. Here's a point I want to make, just in passing, because sometimes we think, well, if I talk so much about the Holy Spirit, what about Jesus? Well, do you believe in the Trinity? Yes, amen. There's a fancy word that we use in theology to describe the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. The word is perichoresis, right? Now, that's a Greek word that literally means a dance. But it talks about, from the outside perspective, when we look at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the dance is so intricate. The interrelationships between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are so intricate. If you've ever seen uh, a really, really good um, uh, pair of dancers, uh, whether it's ballet or whether it's uh, you know, various forms of dance, there's a point in time where they're beyond thought. In fact, we were an older generation, we would know. Fred and Ginger, right? Of course, the, the old saying is that if you thought Fred was good, Ginger had to do all that Fred did in high heels and backwards, right? <laughs> but, but look at how they're dancing. It's so intricate. At some point, you don't know who is doing what, but, it, but, but they're working in unity. And that's the idea of perichoresis. So when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we cannot help but talk about Jesus. When we talk about Jesus, we cannot help but talk about the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Holy Spirit and Jesus, we cannot help but talk about the Father as well, right? They're all intricately related to each other. And so we're not sacrificing Jesus for the Holy Spirit. Neither are we sacrificing the Holy Spirit for Jesus. They're not in competition. We believe in a trinity, a triunity. Amen. Okay? Uh, so th- that's very important. Um, understanding the way the context of Scripture and, and being able to make sense of the broader narrative themes that we see there. Now, uh, this third point is a, is a crucial one that the Holy Spirit's work, including baptism in the Holy Spirit, 
it is holistic and incorporates these elements that I said before. Enlivenment, the idea of new life, being born again. This is John chapter 3 passage. Uh, it involves empowerment, that is doing. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Of course, involved there is being, which is ennoblement or, or, or holiness. So you're not just a bunch of mechan- mechanistic doers. We are doers who have been transformed on the inside. So the action on the outside is motivated from something that's deep on the inside. So the Holy Spirit's work is holistic and incorporates enlivenment, empowerment. Um, and in fact, 1 Samuel 10, 6 and Acts 1, 8. I'm not quoting these passages because I'm sure you have read them. Uh, um, and I, I, uh, It's not that I disrespect scripture, but, but I, I, I really want... I, I'm, assuming that you know these stories. Now, in other audiences, I can't assume that because these folks are not reading the Bible, but I can assume that here, I think. Um, it involves enlightenment, the transformation of our thinking, our ability to, to think and to reason. And it is also a part of an ongoing relationship with God, right? So the Holy Spirit's work is a part of this ongoing relationship with God. We're going to delve a little deeper here. Um, as we build this case for baptism of the Holy Spirit, notice we're talking started from Scripture, from an understanding of Scripture. We're making a, observations from Scripture. And then we're going to zero in a little more closely to understanding the day of Pentecost, which is, for many, uh, in the Latin, the crux interpretum, right? The, 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 uh, the, the point of interpretation, the, the key point for interpretation. So what is the day of Pentecost? Why is the day of Pentecost so important? And how do we understand it in terms of the life and ministry of Jesus? I hinted at it before, but let me do a little bit more work here. I've started this discussion with an assumption. It's a good one, very strong case. The assumption is that Luke and Acts are connected. When you open the Bible and you read, um, well, let me get my uh, Bible here. When you open the Bible and you read Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1 begins, um, now I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation. So my first book, I told you about everything Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he ascended to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions from the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, um, NLT is not my favorite translation, but it's really, really clear, and my students understand it. So there's a former book, right? So the assumption is there's a former book. That means the writer, Luke, is connecting these two things together. All right, so let's begin there. What does Luke observe about the life of Jesus that is important? Again, we're connecting the panorama. What does Luke observe? Well, if you look in the Gospel of Luke, you would notice that Luke pays particular attention to the Holy Spirit. Almost wherever he has a chance, he mentions, oh, Holy Spirit. Um, In fact, if you compare certain uh, texts, for example, um, the text where uh, in Matthew, Jesus teaches uh, if, a, if your son asks you for 
uh, something, you're not going to give him a, 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 a scorpion, right? Uh, and, but, then, but then Luke adds something. So the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those whom he will, who ask for it, right? So it's, it's a very interesting um, uh, role or a very interesting observation to note that the Spirit is very important to Luke. But it's also present everywhere else. Look, for example, in the um, narrative accounts, the infancy narrative accounts, how Luke is careful to note that the Holy Spirit in Elizabeth's womb jumps for joy, and then she is filled with the Spirit, and she prophesies. Trust me, just look at how many prophecies take place just in the very beginning of the book of Luke. It's, it's significant. The Spirit is saturating the atmosphere, as it were, um, at, the, at the birth of Christ. So that's the beginning of the story. But the end of the story, assuming that Luke and Acts are connected, look at the end of the story. The end of the story in Acts 28, what happens there? Paul is in prison. What a letdown. I mean, the narrative begins powerfully. with the Spirit of God everywhere. This is the new covenant. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out. Wow, wonderful. But then the the end of the book, just... Mm -hmm. seems anticlimactic. Now, this is something that bothered me. I didn't know it bothered me until uh, I, I, I reflected more deeply. Why would Luke end it this way? And I made a discovery while at AGTS in seminary, working with a very important uh, thinker um, by the name of Benny Aker, really, really important Pentecostal biblical scholar and theologian. And he said, the problem is that we read these narratives incorrectly. We read these narratives incorrectly. We look in modern literature for the climax to occur close to the end. And then there's a denouement. Whereas certain classical writers put their climax towards the beginning. And the reason they do this, he says, because the writer wants this seminal event to be the thing that echoes through your interpretation of all the other events. Now, um, some of you may remember the Matrix movies, right? Some of us younger folks, right? Now, I'm not endorsing all the content of them, but this is one narrative technique that they did in the second movie, where there's this huge scene of a huge explosion that takes place right at the beginning of the movie. And all the rest of the movie is really trying to figure out Okay, how is this big scene connected with, with the, the developing story? This is kind of, sort of, the way Luke presents Acts 2. Because all of Jesus' birth, his birth, his death, his resurrection, is leading up to this. And then, boom, the Spirit of God comes. Jesus is the prototype. He's significant, yes, but he's the prototype. Because after him, they're going to come 
fact, isn't that what John says? Uh, Jesus says in the book of John? He says, greater works you're going to do because I go to my Father. So, looking at the, at the uh, day of Pentecost is a very, very crucial uh, uh, moment. And understanding Pentecost really is the climax of Jesus' life and ministry. Now, um, okay, now let me go back here just for a second. Let's see, do I say, okay, no, okay, right here. This is especially evident, now I'm going to stop at about 9.45 so we can have questions, because I know some of you have questions, right, so I'll, I'll stop there at 9.45, but one of the classic and significant questions that's, that's raised um, is this. How do we understand Peter's speech on the day of Pentecost? How, how, do, how does this fit in? It's really an important question. And I think we need, we need to be answering, asking that question. That speech in Acts 2, of course, the Spirit of God comes down upon uh, the people. They speak in tongues, right? And everyone thinks, oh, they're drunk. Uh, uh, Peter says, no, these men are not drunk as you suppose. And so he begins this, this speech, this great speech. Again, I encourage you, uh, when you have a chance, go back and read that speech. But I want to suggest to you how, to, how I think this speech should be interpreted. People still don't know who Jesus is. The question in people's minds is, is he just like another Thutus or Judas who, was, who raised a, a, a ruckus and then he got killed and his disciples just scattered? Is he just another failed Messiah? So that's a question of people's minds. So when this experience takes place in Jerusalem and people are, are speaking in tongues, Peter takes this opportunity to show them something very crucial. So he asks, the logic of the, the speech is this. How do you know who Jesus really is? His answer is, you know who Jesus is because he's the one who poured out the Spirit just as he promised. The day of Pentecost locates Jesus not with the other cabal of would-be messiahs. It makes Jesus unique. This day of Pentecost, then, is an authentication that Jesus truly did ascend to the Father. Remember his promise all throughout the Gospels, I'm going to go to my Father, right? So the day of Pentecost is authentication that Jesus did, in fact, ascend to heaven, His ascension having been validated, it then validates his resurrection. That only someone who would go to the Father and would be able to pour out the Spirit, someone like this must have been truly resurrected by God. In fact, this is what Jesus says, right? Going back further then, if his resurrection is to be believed, 
based on the evidence that we see of the spirit being poured forth here, then his death has got to be significant. His death was no ordinary death. His death was a death that pleased God. Again, we're putting ourselves in a first century context. Now we look at it, we look back at it, on it, and we, we read into that all the, 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 the message of the divinity of Christ, which we believe, of course. But you have to understand, the average person who is there in Jerusalem, this is not what they're thinking. They don't have years of theology. They don't have Paul's letters explaining things. They're just people on the street who have come for a celebration, the Feast of Pentecost. But what Peter does is show them now, this pouring forth of the Spirit, which, by the way, the, day, the Feast of Pentecost celebrates something really interesting. In addition to, be a, to being a harvest feast, it's also a commemoration, commemoration of the giving of the law. It's as though the, God is saying, I'm giving you a new law. Not the law that kills according to the letter, but a law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus which will set you free from the law of sin and death. I mean, it's, it's all kinds of imagery going on here. But so his, his resurrection says that he truly died for our sins, that he was not just another would-be Messiah. Put another way, the day of Pentecost is not an appendage to the story. The day of Pentecost is a part of the glorious climax of the story that God has acted decisively in the salvation of mankind, offering to mankind not only forgiveness of sins, but a new heart and a new spirit, as was prophesied years ago by the prophets Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Joel. In fact, um, Joel's uh, sermon or or prophecy figures very heavily in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. So Pentecost is not an appendage. Again, I, too many of us preach it and teach it as though Pentecost is a, a, a something added on extra. No, my friends. In the theology of the earliest church, Pentecost is integral. And whenever someone is baptized in the Holy Spirit, whenever someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, this is a sign to everyone around that the one we serve is the one who went to heaven. The one who went to heaven is the one who was resurrected. The one who was resurrected is the one who died for our sins. So we don't have an artificial disconnection between salvation of our souls and the filling of the Holy Spirit. These are one continuous experience. All right? We have to teach this better. I have to teach. No, not you. I have to teach this better. I have to teach this better. It's not something that's added on later on. Oh, by the way, you can get this if you want. No, 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 sir. This is a privilege for every believer. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, I'm going ahead of myself. Okay. Ah, time. Where does time go? Let me just, I'm going to hit Acts chapter 19. And uh, let's talk a little bit first, though, about Acts 29. Right? Of course, Acts only has 28 chapters. But I think the way the book of Acts ends, it's almost an ellipsis when you read it. Dot, dot, dot. An invitation for us. The thing that was started by Jesus 
and was promised in Acts chapter 1, that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, is now an experience not just for the elite, but for all of you. It's not surprising that in Peter's speech, isn't that what Peter says? That this gift is not just for you, but it's for your children. Those who are nearby and far off, your children, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Call, 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 call. You hear the echo? There's an echo here. So we have this option. No, we have this obligation to become a part of this new community, this spirit-filled community. It's an invitation for us to be part of that community. Now, um, quickly, I would suggest that another basic affirmation is that the events of the day of Pentecost, because it's so important, these events of the day of Pentecost form a pattern for initial spirit experience that continues throughout the book. And again, do it, when you get a chance, read these texts, Acts 2, 8, 9, 10, and 19. Um, these are very critical. The Spirit of God comes down upon the believers the day of Pentecost. They speak with new tongues. And then what flows from that? The Samaritan Pentecost, right? The people, uh, ministry is going on, but what's happening? They realize something's missing. So who do they send for? Peter and John, please come down because we want these people to be filled with baptized in the Holy Spirit. What about Paul and his conversion to Saul? Uh, Saul, his conversion to Paul, rather. And what about Acts 10, calling this household? And especially the explanations that are given are just, just mind-blowing. And of course, Acts chapter 19, we just mentioned. Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believe? We never even heard of a thing called the Holy Spirit. In fact... I use this when I, when I do lectures to talk about pneumatological deism. Right? Deism is the belief that God sets things in order and then he just leaves them alone for us to operate. Many Christians have a pneumatological deism. They believe Jesus saves them and the Holy Spirit comes and saves them. And that's great. But the role of the Holy Spirit is extremely truncated in their lives. But Paul asked these people, have you received the Holy Spirit? They said no. We don't even know there's such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And what does he do? He prays for them. That they may what? That they may receive. He, so he lays hands on them. They receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they speak in tongues and prophesy. Um, so let me suggest that there's a pattern. Okay. There's a pattern. The pattern is that there is an experience in God for the believer that is logically, notice what I say, it's logically, though not necessarily chronologically subsequent to salvation. Typically people are saved and they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's a logical process, but it's not necessarily chronological. What breaks this is Cornelius' household. Because while the man is still preaching, something happens. Is it simultaneous? Is it near, like, like, like this? This half second? I do not know. So I, I, I argue the case that there is an experience for believers, clearly pointed out in the book of Acts. And of course, notice, in the life of Jesus. Have you noticed that there is subsequence in the life of Jesus? He comes to this world, the Son of God, yes, but he does nothing. Until when? The Holy Spirit, he comes up with a reward, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And one of the first things the Holy Spirit does to drive him out. Now, the language there is so strong that it's almost embarrassing. The Spirit of God drives him 
into the, into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And he comes back. Again, the Luke 4 passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's subsequence. When you talk to some fellow evangelicals, and I, I share this with them, I say, we've never seen this. It's obvious right in front of your eyes. Why have you not seen this? There is a subsequence in the life of Jesus. Um, secondly, this experience is separable, but not distinct from salvation. Separable, at least in categories, but not entirely distinct. The expectation is that if you're filled with the Spirit, that you will go on to be, sorry, so the expectation is that if you're, you're saved, that you will go on to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You will go on to live this Spirit-filled life. Thirdly, this experience is, is available to all. This is what I mentioned last, uh, last evening, uh, Monday evening, about the democratization of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not just for the rich or the poor, or for the rich or, or for the males or, for, uh, or for, for, the, for the old. Typically, the categories that you would expect, religious power to flow to, the rich, the older, and the, the males. No, friends. The Spirit of God is for everyone, rich and poor. Young and old, male and female. And of course, um, Peter makes his case in Acts 2.39. And fourthly, tongues are a significant corollary to this experience. Tongues are connected with this experience. Now, I believe in initial physical evidence. Yes. But I don't have to believe initial physical evidence to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. In fact, before I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, before I, I, I um, was baptized in the Holy Spirit, I really didn't know much about the speaking in tongues business. But when I got a hold of God, God did something with my tongue and transformed it. But tongues are important. Tongues are crucial. But I want us to be careful that we don't connect all of God's activity simply with tongues. It is, a, it is a categorical mistake. This is a, a holistic experience. Tongues is important. Clearly the pattern is there. I mean, I will argue with any New Testament th- scholar or theologian strongly that th- you cannot say to me that there is no strong correlation here. But I will not say what sometimes we say, which is a mistake, that just because a person speaks in tongues, they must be filled baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need to be careful. The earliest Pentecostals understood this, and they were careful. At Azusa Street, you know what they said? Uh, there was a came a time when people would, would filter into um, their meetings who were not Christian, who were spooky spiritualists, and they would speak in tongues. And, they, and so uh, William Seymour and others started to be far more careful about how they understood this concept of tongues. Because just because you have tongues does not mean that you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work is a whole lot deeper and a whole lot more profound than just... We know in our experience, don't we, of people who fake. Just to get the pressure off them. And when they fake it enough, they can sound real good. But the faking of it stops them and and hinders others from experiencing the true true thing. Tongues are a significant corollary. Um, Another time I will spend uh, maybe 
uh, go into more detail on that. Okay, um, I'm going to move beyond this definition of spirit baptism to bring up just two conceptual analogies, then we'll have questions. The first is um, understanding that life in the spirit is the thing that the Holy Spirit is drawing us to. Salvation is a necessary part of it, right? Salvation as defined by forgiveness of sins, I'm on my way to heaven. That's part of it, but that's not the ultimate goal of it. God's ultimate goal is that we become like him. We become like Christ in the world. That what the Spirit of God did in Genesis 1-2 in hovering upon the earth to bring, it in, to bring it into alignment with God's plan and design, the same thing that Holy Spirit does in the life of Jesus in, in, in the Gospels, hovering upon, um, hovering upon Christ. By the way, this hovering happens upon Mary as well. The power of God shall overshadow you, and the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And that thing which is conceived in you shall be called holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary so that the conception of Jesus Christ becomes possible. That's, a, that's an interesting one. I mean, us Pentecostals, we're not sure about this Mary business. <laughs> but it's clearly mentioned in the, in, the, in the Gospel of Luke. But again, the goal is that just as Jesus conformed to the image of God and did God's work, so too we who are drawn by the Spirit enter into this life in the Spirit, this transformative life. And lastly, this last picture I'll leave with you, which I think is very crucial. Um, now sometimes we, we, we focus on tongues and the external uh, phenomena, right? The manifestations, because that's what make us, make us seem to be successful ministers. These are things we can quantify, right? When headquarters says how many baptisms of the Holy Spirit, we, all we have to do is look to see how many people are speaking in tongues and say, okay, yeah, your church is spirit-filled and is growing. Well, my friends, that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Because the Holy Spirit's work, just like the, um, the iceberg, about 10% of the mass of an iceberg is above water. I think the folks of the Titanic figured that one out. There was a lot more going on underneath than they were able to see, unfortunately. It's a tragedy. But likewise, it is tragic for us to only focus on this top 10, 12%, I don't know what percentage, but this top layer. We need to be getting people rooted and grounded into the true depth of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way we can do this is to connect it to all of their Christian life. And then we connect it to Scripture uh, and how Scripture talks about what it means to be a person filled with the Spirit. We can go back to um, Genesis. We can go to, to, to um, Exodus, where Holiab uh, and Bezalel, or the Spirit of God, comes upon them to do work in the temple. We can go back to Gideon. The Spirit of God comes down upon him. He blows a trumpet. We can go back to, to Samuel, to, to, not Samuel, but to Saul, rather, in the book of Samuel, where the Spirit of God comes upon him. He becomes a different man, and he prophesies. Right? And the saying is, is Saul also among the prophets? There's this deeper wealth of work that the Holy Spirit wants to do. And I think to be successful Pentecostal ministers, we're going to have to do this compellingly for the 21st century. All right, 9.51. Sorry, six minutes over. Do we have any questions? Yes, please.
challenge I'm facing, like in our city, we have a, one of the largest churches is an apostolic church. A lot of strong teaching. I'm not even sure if this is one of their doctrines, but it seems to me that, that at the point of salvation, you know, they really press Holy Spirit baptism and speaking in tongues. And uh, how do I help people understand, you know, it isn't an addendum. Right. Yet, you know, it's not, you know, salvation and speaking in tongues are not, you know. Identical. Yeah. Uh, okay. Within the Christian tradition, we have a lot of these paradoxes. Uh, the nows and the not yet. Right? The positional, but not the actual. Right? So, so within the Christian tradition, we have all this all the time. We, we're struggling with the fact that, yes, all that we need to have is in Christ. But then... How is that ultimately lived out? Uh, the way I would point them, and the way I've helped people in the past, is to show them this is the narrative of the disciples. Were the disciples not Christians or saved before the day of Pentecost? Before they spoke in tongues? Of course they were saved. Right? Now, but I don't want a mask. And here's the, here's the, I'm, the, I'm in the midst of between two poles. Because some would say that, okay, yeah, you can separate them far apart. But no, that's not what I'm saying. You don't set, separate them that far apart. Because this is a natural progression. Once you have life in Christ, life in the Spirit is a natural progression. Because Jesus' life was encompassed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, we talk about that much today. But... Oh my goodness, when we look at the life of Jesus and the Spirit at work in the life of Jesus, from his conception to his, his, his calling to, to when he says, you know, if I but the finger of God or if I but the Spirit of God drive out demons, you know, everywhere he's understanding, acknowledging that the Spirit of God is working in and through him. Some places they say the Father, yes, that's true. But in Jesus' theology, he understands this word, this perichoresis that's taking place between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I don't want to push it too far away. But I want to say that there are multiple ways in which people can connect with baptism in the Holy Spirit. Some people have said, well, you've got to wait until you get baptized in the Holy Spirit to prove what? To prove what? I don't know. In my experience, I've seen people who have come into church. I mean, raw pagans. Come in and accept Jesus Christ, and boom, the Holy Spirit descends upon them, and they are, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit right there and then, immediately. And I've seen others, this takes a while. I can't say why or what causes what. Um, but I will say that there is a variety of experience and that we need to allow for that in our teaching and not to be so not rigid one way or, or, or the other. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yeah. Okay. I know. But you know what? One of the things I've learned about apostolics, though, it makes them hungry for a deeper experience. Of course, sometimes that hunger is based off of fear, and we don't want the, spirit of, uh, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be surrounded by fear and anxiety. In fact, um, let's see. Let's see if I got this slide up. Uh, ah, uh, I have outlined several, and I, I uh, probably will make this available through the office, uh, but I've outlined eight hindrances, and there's seven here and there's another one at the end, but eight hindrances to the baptism of the Holy Spirit that I've identified in my ministry and responses to each one of these. Right? Um, uh, again, I'll give another, a quick story. This woman who's been seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit for years, 
because of bad teaching, she was anxious and, and scared. She, I remember her, she was feeling, I think she may have been apostolic, I'm not sure. But she had, she had that apostolic anxiety, if I can call it that. Pardon me? She didn't feel saved, were exactly right. So I, I, first of all, and it was on the phone, I said to her, um, there, you don't need to freak out. This is the same Jesus who loves you. The same God who cares for you. Just relax. Just relax. Don't, don't try to pretend or work yourself up. And right there on the phone, I just prayed, Lord, baptize in the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, the wellspring just broke in her. Sometimes people don't get baptized in the Holy Spirit because they are fearful. Did you have a, Oh, sorry, 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 I thought I saw a hand up. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I, I do have a question. Sure, of course. Um, I see some similarity with the, the birth of the Assembly of God, the movement here in the States, while the climax coming at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then somehow it doesn't echo through this young generation. The echoes somehow stop out. Okay. I will address that. Um, this is a phenomenon that happens in a lot of religions. You see this 100-year mark? This 100-year mark is crucial because you have many people, most of your congregations have no idea about Azusa Street, no idea about um, uh, our earliest Pentecostal movement. Right? So I think, I don't think this is necessary. I don't think this is theological. I think this is practical. We have got to teach them. We have got to model the real experience. We cannot leave it, and this is part of my message on, on Monday night, was we, we kind of leave it in the closet somewhere. I, 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 I was uh, planning to attend one particular church. I won't mention the name of it. It's a pretty famous church. Um, I, was, I was attending there uh, briefly when I moved to, to the state of Ohio, trying to figure out, okay, where do I go to church and so on, where to connect. And this church was right down the street. Man, it was like, my dream to go to a church that I could walk to, <laughs> right? Um, but then I, I got into the church and realized the guys on the, on the platform were talking about the Holy Spirit did this and showed them this. And so and I looked around the congregation. I hadn't seen any kind of manifestations whatsoever. I looked at the position statement online and said, oh, we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and so on and so forth. Oh, this is great. But I went to the church. It wasn't there. So I sat with the, um, one of the leaders, and I said to him, what's happening? He says, well, we, we believe that, but we don't practice it in our churches. We don't practice it on Sunday mornings. We don't practice it in our... If you want to practice that, you do it in your own, on your own. And I don't know, I'm not normally this rude. Maybe my wife would have begged to differ, but I'm not normally this rude. <laughs> I said to him, my God, in a generation... It's going to be gone. And it doesn't matter if it's on your documents. It doesn't matter about four, our four distinctive doctrines. It doesn't matter. If our kids do not see it in our lives and don't see the benefit that it accrues to us in our lives, we are just wasting a whole bunch of time. So the, the, the battle has to be, I think one of the battles is theological. After all, I'm a theologian and I have to I have to eat, right? <laughs> but I see it being twofold. Not only is it informational. Let me add a third category. Not only is it informational, it has to be formational. This has to be something that we eat, sleep, and breathe. 
right? It's something that we assume when we come to church. God is going to show up. We're going to experience God. We're going to hear a prophecy. We're going to hear uh, 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 tongues and interpretation. We're going to experience God healing someone. We're going to experience, we, we, we build that expectation. But then fourthly, practically, or thirdly rather, get my numbers wrong. So informationally, formationally, and practically, we've got to make this happen. We've got to provide space in our services. Come on in, come on in. We'll wrap it up here. We've got to provide, come on in. We've got to provide space in our services. Forgot to work. That's why I went back to the whole microphone thing and our amplified instruments thing. If we have people on the stage drowning out what's happening in the congregation, what's going to happen is that we all become spectators. And we don't see ourselves as spirit-filled parts of the community who have something to contribute. And slowly but surely, by atrophy and not exercising our spiritual muscles, we lose.